You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to be reading verses 47 through 50. It's one of Jesus' parables. It's on page 819 of the Pew Bible. And again, it's Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50. Hear the word of God. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, a remarkable series of parables in this chapter is brought to conclusion in a striking manner. Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a net that gathers all sorts of fish. And I believe the net here represents the visible church, those who profess faith in Christ, at least outwardly, The external call goes out through the ministry of the word, and it gathers all kinds of fish. Within the church, you'll find both good and bad, true and false, believers and unbelievers. There is no perfect church on earth. It's a mixture, and don't be surprised. At the end of the age, when the net is full, the good fish will be preserved, and we're told that the bad fish will be thrown away. So this parable teaches us something about the final judgment at the end of time. It exposes the unspeakable misery of those who must spend eternity in hell. A great separation will take place. Believers will be separated from unbelievers. Those who trusted in Christ will be saved from the second death and destruction. Those who did not trust in Christ will be cast off and disposed of like bad fish. According to the parable, the former will spend eternity in heaven, while the latter will endure the penalty of hell. And I quote again, the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell. It is God's ultimate and eternal judgment upon sinners who reject Christ. And I don't think I have to tell you, but the teaching on hell is one of the most difficult doctrines in the Christian faith. It is for me, anyway. It's an awful topic. And yet it is absolutely necessary for us to consider. The Bible says in no unclear words that the unrepentant and unbelieving sinner will be punished in the fiery furnace. 
That's how our Lord describes it. And he's never given to exaggeration. The penalty for sin will be both painful and endless, which simply means without intermission. Those in hell will be forever miserable. They will be as miserable as the saints will be joyful in heaven. And this doctrine of endless punishment is affirmed repeatedly in Scripture, over and over again. In fact, Jesus spoke far more about hell than he did about heaven. Not surprisingly, this sobering truth is scorned by the world and rejected by many. Paul refers to those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, I've mentioned this before, but let me say it again. There used to be a pastor named Rob Bell. He turned away from the faith and became a universalist. Everybody's going to be saved. Here's what he said. What kind of God is that that we would need to be rescued from this God? How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news? This is nothing new because the ancient Alexandrian theologian Origen from the third century challenged this doctrine as well. He believed at the end of his life that everyone's going to be reconciled to the Lord. He said Christ's victory is complete and nothing will be left unredeemed. The Council of Constantinople in 553 condemned his teaching as heretical, and for the next thousand years, a millennium, the historical view of heaven and hell prevailed. Al Mohler said hell was such a fixture of the Christian mind that most persons understood all of life in terms of their ultimate destination. Men and women longed for heaven and feared hell. But during the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, the doctrine again came under attack. Skepticism was rampant and doubts as to eternal punishment multiplied. And today, as heirs of that time period, the rejection of Christianity's historic teaching on hell is widespread. People reject it not on scriptural grounds, interestingly enough, but on personal perspective. They refuse to believe, like Rob Bell, that a God of love would torture people forever as a punishment for sins committed within the context of a finite life. You mean to tell me that one careless word would plunge somebody into eternal hell? Asaph said in Psalm 73 that he struggled with the prosperity of the wicked When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, he says, I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end, hell. Al Mohler goes on to say that modern skepticism on hell can be traced to changes in views about four things. One, their view of God. He's love and would never punish anybody eternally. But as we said this morning, he's thrice holy. The view of justice has changed. Today, it's all about restoration and not retribution. But God says, vengeance is mine. 
I will repay. The view of responsibility has changed. We blame not ourselves, we blame our external circumstances. And the view of salvation has definitely changed. We're now saved from bad habits and low self-esteem, not hell. At one time, people were concerned about being saved from the penalty of hell, and in our day, people are looking for salvation from the fear of hell. John Gerstner's right. Modern theology has tended to take either the pain out of eternity or the eternity out of pain. That's what we face. So our doctrine of hell is going to shape our view of God's holiness and man's sin and Christ's cross. One reason why Jesus referred to this so often was to give sinners adequate warning. That's a merciful thing. Proverbs 14 says, The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. We as sinners need to be reminded about the dangers of everlasting punishment. It underscores our desperate need as well as the graciousness of God's offer. This is a great salvation. And part of the reason why it's so great is because of that from which we're saved. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. At the same time, the king requires his heralds to make known the whole counsel of God. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give them no warning, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood will require it your, I'll require at your hand. The blood of souls. Therefore, for various reasons, it's important for us to consider this doctrine. A sermon or two on hell may just keep some souls out of hell. Who knows? Therefore, tonight, we begin a series dealing with both heaven and hell. We start with hell because that's the condition in which man now finds himself. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The fall is first, redemption follows, so we deal with hell at the outset. Besides, I like to finish on a good note. Our task for tonight is to think seriously about the nature of hell, the fiery furnace. And the Bible portrays this in at least four different ways. First, the Bible describes hell as a banishment to underscore, I think, the tremendous loss of damnation. The damned will be totally and finally separated from God's comfort. It will be eternal excommunication. And the Lord will cut them off. They say to him now, depart from us. And he will say to them then, depart from me. They will have no share in the blessedness of heaven. They will have no mansions of glory, no better country, no city whose builder and maker is God. They will be banished from the presence of the Lord and they will have no fellowship with saints or holy angels. They will be separated from Christ who will forever shine in his glory. And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
And doesn't this, in your mind as well as mine, emphasize a tremendous loss of everlasting perdition? You've lost something. So have I. You know that feeling. It's nothing compared to this. The unbeliever will be cast out from God's comfort, but not from his vengeance. He will not escape God because that's what makes hell, hell. His avenging presence. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He'll be driven from the fountain of blessedness and the source of all enjoyment. He'll be deprived of all pleasure. He'll be divested of every delight. He'll be dispossessed of all consolation, denied any support, and left without any sliver of hope. He'll be destitute of everything that might afford a person any kind of comfort, no peace, no fellowship, no solace, no relief of any kind whatsoever. And he will be exiled to endless punishment, and yet he will see the saints in heaven. Remember the man who asked Jesus if those that are saved be few? Listen to part of the answer that Jesus gave. In that place, he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. They'll see us. Think of the unceasing envy among the damned who observe the saints. While they are banished, they'll forever behold believers filled with inconceivable joys. And Jesus says, hell is where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And many theologians equate that immortal worm with the gnawing of conscience the envy and the resentment that will gnaw at the conscience to the far reaches of eternity and the remorse of missing the opportunity of grace. And therefore, this teaches you and I to endure temporary pains now to escape eternal pains later. Jesus viewed this as a real, awful, eternal place of unspeakable suffering. That alone should convince us. He says, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more to do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. And again, he's never given to exaggeration. The first aspect is banishment, but secondly, the Bible portrays hell as a place of punishment to emphasize its intense misery. And this is the primary angle from which the biblical authors depict this awful place. Our text says that the angels threw them into the fiery furnace, which highlights the wrath of God who will punish without ceasing. So vehement and so intense will that be that it's likened to a blazing furnace. Think of never-ending remorse. Think of mental torture. Think of inexpressible pain. The whole experience of the damned will be taken up with sheer agony. Therefore, in Revelation 20, John calls it the lake of fire, the second death. And can there be any more acute suffering than being thrown into a lake of fire? 
The resurrected bodies of the damned will be forever burning in flames. If the day of grace is misspent, if the spirit of grace is resisted, if the means of grace are neglected or abused, then the sinner will never escape from the fiery furnace. And God will be to him a never-ending source of physical and spiritual suffering. That's why it says our God is a consuming fire. Holiness will make them miserable. Jesus says those on his left will go away into eternal punishment. And we must understand that this punishment of hell will be justly deserved. No one who will spend eternity in that place will do so without cause. No one. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Every sin, even the least, deserves God's wrath and curse in hell. So what is due is the second death. That was the original threat in Genesis 2.17, physical, spiritual, eternal death. God is justified and blameless in his judgments. A sin, think of it, against an infinite God deserves an infinite penalty. It's proportion. Those suffering in hell will be punished in both soul and body because with one hand God will hold them up eternally and with the other hand he'll bring them down eternally. And therefore Jesus depicts this penalty in the most horrid and graphic terms. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. I don't know if you've ever been burned. I have, not severely, but I've been burned before. And I think fire causes one of the most exquisite forms of pain. The scorch, the singe. And it will be intense and excruciating, worse than anything else on earth. And as I indicated, the intensity of suffering will be in proportion to the wickedness of life. There will be degrees of punishment. And make no mistake, it will be a fiery furnace heated by, the, by divine wrath. The furnace of Nebuchadnezzar was heated seven times, and that's nothing compared to this. Those who feel it will be conscious. They will be mindful. They'll be fully aware. And every faculty will be engaged fully to facilitate unhindered agony. There will never, ever, to all eternity, be a place of respite for the wicked. Peter describes them as spirits in prison. And Isaiah tells us there is no peace for the wicked. So it's a place of banishment, it's a place of punishment. Thirdly, it's a place of destruction, not annihilation, but utter desolation. Let me explain. The fiery furnace burns everlastingly to destroy, but not to eradicate. Jesus says the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Destruction can mean annihilation, but it doesn't have to mean that. It can also imply loss or ruin or corruption so that something loses its essence or function. To destroy a piece of land can mean to make it desolate 
or barren. It's not eradicated, it's just destroyed. Ointment can be destroyed if it's wasted. A wineskin can be destroyed if it's punctured. The world can be destroyed if it's flooded. As Douglas Moo reminds us, none of these objects cease to exist. They cease to be useful or to exist in their original intended state. That's the same way that it's used in terms of hell. Those consigned to the second death have missed the mark and forfeited glory. And thus, tragically, they fail to serve the purpose for which they're created. They're destroyed. And this solemn and sobering thought ought to make the sincere believer tremble. It should. Because you see, true faith understands the truth of what the Bible reveals. The very thought of endless punishment in hell can induce terror. Unbelievers scoff at this. Their knees don't knock. They reject it, but believers know that Jesus is not lying. We tremble at the reality of eternal punishment with no hope of mercy because we know that it's true. And that leads to the fourth depiction, which is eternal misery, the most difficult to grasp. Eternal misery. Our text refers to weeping and gnashing of teeth, a woeful existence. Elsewhere, it's called a prison where souls are detained and punished. It's the law that sends them there, and it's the law which keeps them there. But the most miserable and gruesome aspect of it all is the fact that it will be endless. I think it's almost impossible for finite creatures to contemplate eternity. We are bound by space and time. We can't conceive of an endless existence. And yet scripture is clear in stating that the agonies of the damned will be eternal. And that is the hell of hell. Never, ever the slightest ray of hope. Revelation 20 says the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the primary reason for the eternality of punishment is the nature of God. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and so his wrath can't be any different. Makes sense. It would be unbiblical and illogical to assume that his wrath could change. He is absolutely opposed to sin. He is settled in his antagonism against it. That will never change to all eternity. And at the same time, no amount of punishment will ever change the damned. After 10,000 years in hell, they will hate God as much then as they do now, perhaps more. There will be no repentance, no turning from sin, no humility. Their sins will multiply, their misery will compound, and their punishment will increase. And therefore, God's wrath and fury will punish to the far reaches of eternity. Now, this is a very difficult doctrine that is expressly taught in the scriptures. People may not like it. They may try to ignore it. But they can't say that the Bible denies it. 
And what it has to say about the nature of hell is absolutely terrifying. Gerstner says words can never convey, much less exaggerate, the terrors of the damned. And I would, I would rather not declare it, to be honest with you. And you would rather not listen to it. But God is gracious in revealing to us the reality and the horror of hell. Because for some, it will be a means of driving them to Christ to find refuge. For others, it will leave them inexcusable at the judgment of the great day. And as one theologian put it, how much better is it for us to see hell than to feel the divine wrath? So the Bible clearly, emphatically, and plainly declares that there will be a judgment. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There will be a day, the hour is coming, when all will be called to account. And because it is necessary, we must appear, this truth is clearly revealed. God, who in all things has been faithful, will not be unfaithful in this. Is not the Lord's Supper appointed to maintain a remembrance of this? As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, judgment day. It is in part a reminder that God is as faithful to his threats as he is to his promises. If you are not a Christian, then tonight is an opportunity for you to seek salvation. God gave his son freely, graciously, sovereignly, that whoever believes in him may not perish in the place that we've been talking about. And this offer is free. It's the gospel. It's offered to everybody without partiality. It makes no difference who you are or what you've done. The terms are plain. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And I believe it is the height of irrationality for some condemned man to decline a pardon. It makes no sense to reject the gospel offer in light of what we've considered. The only reasonable response is to accept these terms and to trust in Christ. But if you are a Christian, then tonight you have every reason to be humbled and grateful. Paul says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. On that cross, he suffered this. He drank to the dregs the Father's cup brimming with divine wrath, and he is the one and only mediator between God and sinful men. And so I quote the words of Isaiah, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. May this be an encouragement to God's people this evening. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this is a sobering topic. We're thankful that you've revealed it so clearly in Scripture, so repeatedly, because we need such reminders, if only to develop our gratitude for the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you'll help us to praise his name because he deserves our praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, 
to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.